Hey there, just a quick message ahead of this episode to say we hope you like the rebrand, which includes a new website, rawuk.com, that's the URL. On there you can listen to and watch all our previous content. You can get extra content. You can also buy our first ever Raw merchandise and even sign up to become a Raw member, which will keep us going and keep you at the heart of this exciting journey, earning perks in return. We need your support, so please do check us out at rawuk.com and remember to like, comment and subscribe to everything we do on all our channels. And of course, make sure you tell all your pals. But most of all, enjoy this latest episode. Cheers. Your name's not Dan, you're not coming in. Hello and welcome to another edition of Raw. My name's Tom Latcham. Well, today's guest is a popular Birmingham DJ and promoter and a rare female artist who came out of the 90s rave scene. She's played house, Hard House, drummer bass, and as the 90s rave scene developed so fast musically, she was running an old school night in the mid-90s when the very same music had not long been counted as up front. Since then, she's owned record shops and continues to run a successful online ticketing agency, although, of course, that will have had problems in the last year, and we're going to talk about that. But she's also still spinning the wheels of steel. Well, that is when COVID allows, of course. She is the one and only Mistress Mo, and she joins us now. She's Mo Jones. Hi, Mo. Morning. How, How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Very well. It's nice and sunny today. Makes a change. Yeah, it does. Uh, we're, we're, well, to be honest, don't know when this is going to go out, but by that point, there might be glorious sunshine every day. But we feel, <laughs> we're, we're in just at the end of May and it's utterly miserable, isn't it? Um, so how have you been for the last, uh, I mean, it's, the last year? We'll, we'll, we'll come on to it in more detail. But how, how are you? How have you been? Obviously, selling tickets is not probably the best selling thing to be doing during outdoor, a pandemic. Outdoor festivals as well, which is pretty much what we specialise in um, now. It's been fairly horrific and shocking, but, you know, there are definitely positives to be taken from the last uh, 12 to 18 months. Having a bit of a breather um, is definitely one of them. I think a few people have, have, have agreed that having an enforced break is actually quite good for the soul. So a chance for a bit of reflection, chance for some family time. Can't say that I've actually uh, had any fun doing uh, sorting out the cupboards or sorting out the house, the estate. <laughs> All these annoying people on furlough that have had, you know, totally tidy gardens and that. None of that's happened. But um, it's all good. It's all good. We're, we're, good. We, I feel like there's light at the end of the tunnel, finally. I'm just keeping yeah. my fingers firmly crossed, you know, for June the 21st. We'll see. Yeah, me and you both. Um, well, forgive me for pointing it out uh, but it does feel rather strange of us to feature a female artist since there were so few in the 90s rave scene uh, and after dj rap who we interviewed uh, last year uh, you're just the second woman that we've interviewed in nine months which is pretty depressing uh, but it is a reality of the 90s rave scene unfortunately um we're going to discuss why it might be later but was it obvious to you at the time that there was a lack of women involved behind the decks or on the mic and, and how did that feel do you know, I'm really lucky because I've never really considered, and this sounds ridiculous, I've never considered myself a female. It's not kind of the first thing that I think about. I just, I'm just me and I've just always done what I want to do. I've been very, very lucky in life that I've, I've always been able to do what I want to do. And um, it never really, it never really bothered me, to be honest. I did a, I did an engineering degree at university, very handy. Uh, and so that was a very sort of male environment. Uh, most of my friends are blokes it's just that's just how it ended up I think well I, looking back 30 odd years on and the progress that we've made in terms of uh, gender equality I know we've got a million miles to go of course but there have been major steps in terms of female equality how mad does it seem that there were only a handful of female rave artists among the many dozens of rave artists in the 90s or, or, or doesn't it feel that mad to you as someone who lived through it 
I think looking back, uh, taking the position that we've got now, it feels totally mad because there is obviously absolutely no reason at all why women couldn't and shouldn't have been, you know, uh, more prevalent in the scene. Um, but at the time, I don't know. I, don't, I, I Honestly, I, I was hoping to come up with some wonderful, well-informed answer for you about this. And I'm afraid <laughs> I've spoken to loads Wait of minute. people. Should we just stop? There still, still isn't one. It's just, it's just, you know, women were out there, whether they just didn't put themselves forward, whether there was too much, you know, too much of a boys club, didn't want to let the girls in, or whether it was just the girls are just happy to rave and, and not do it. I just don't know. Okay. Well, look, we, we, we will try to. I mean, I'm not going to say that we're going to come up with an answer, Mo, today during this podcast, but, <laughs> but we will we will have a go at exploring it in a bit more depth a bit later on. Um, as an old school DJ and promoter, you obviously like or love uh, the early 90s sound. What is it about that sound that got you hooked and has kept you playing it and promoting it for 30 years? I mean, I'll be honest and let you into a secret here. When I first started going raving to the free parties, to um, to some of the early Fantasias and things like that, I didn't really, I didn't really think about the music either. It wasn't like I had, I didn't, I wasn't even really aware of DJs and stuff. I just went for the party and to have a good time with my friends. You know, when I think back to some of the warehouse raves and stuff, I, I tried to think what music did I even hear? And, I, and I, I'm not sure I could even tell you. So it was just, I think it was the whole thing. It was the kind of the, the scene and the music and the getting there and the excitement and the, the fact that this scene was like growing under our, you know, it was developing as we were taking part in it. You know, it was amazing. Um, but I think the whole package kind of comes together rather than necessarily the music. I think now um, playing old school, it's it's tricky. It's hard to play old school music. It's hard to mix. It's slow. There's a lot of different BPMs going on one tune does not necessarily mix with another tune you'll suddenly get some mad key change halfway through the middle of a of a record you know when i'm when i'm preparing for a set i really have to work quite hard on an old school um set to avoid some major clanger you know you thought you'd be so, used uh, to it by now mo <laughs> well yeah there is that um, it doesn't cost a lot of money either anymore because uh, i've got all the tunes <laughs> that's true that's true so i mean that excitement that you describe and again we'll talk about it uh, when we move through your early years in the rave scene though that excitement of the whole package as you put it of the rave scene um music atmosphere productions etc etc and also i suppose the outlook of the ravers does modern rave music have that same appeal still and i know you still go to raves yes totally does really? Really? It totally does. And one of the things I'm most looking forward to about going back out raving is all these like talented, creative people that have been stuck indoors for a year and a half with their recording equipment. I'm expecting some amazing music when we get back out in the field. Um, yeah, so I literally can't wait. I, I, it's different now and you have to accept it's different. And all us old fogies harp on about it's never going to be the same. It isn't going to be the same. There's no way. Um, you know, we went out without phones without sat navs without you know we dressed to be comfortable um you know no one was going to remember it afterwards frankly you were lucky if you could even actually remember it let alone have a of a sort of video or photograph um memory of it so it was it was it was totally about that moment in time previously whereas now there's a lot of recording going on and sort of showing off to your mates and having to look good because you know it's part of the it's part of the experience of the night out but i, I still raves now are great sort of does suggest that whole photographing thing and wanting to be seen uh, that perhaps the rave scene is not really any longer for us <laughs> 
I don't know. Don't take that away from me. I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I work hard. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mum of two kids. You know, I, I, I do all that graft. I run a business. Um, but as long as I can go raving a couple of times a year, I, I, that's it. That's my, you know, I'm, I'm, that's my box ticked, and my, my soul is, is happy to do the, the mundane stuff. But you know, don't take raving away from us fogies. It's 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 not going to sit well. <laughs> I think a lot of people will be saying amen to that, Mo. <laughs> <laughs> it's about a pressure. It's about a roar. So I'm here with uh, Mistress Mo, Mo Jones. Uh, you live in Birmingham and you put on lots of uh, events in Birmingham. You had a record shop in Birmingham. Your life is centred around Birmingham, basically. Uh, but you're not from Birmingham originally. You haven't got a Brummie accent. Where where did you grow up? Um, here, there and everywhere, really. I did. I started off life in um, Surrey. I did a spell in Essex. I think that's where the kind of twang comes from. I was 12 um, when we left Essex and moved um, to Salisbury in Wiltshire. And I spent my sort of teenage years there. Um, and really, it was getting a car at the age of 17, living in a small, sleepy village. And uh, 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 just like had to get out of there. Um, the last bus home was like nine o'clock. So, um, you know, getting that car, passing, passing my driving test. I think it took me two months from my 17th birthday to get my driving test. And then that was it. The world was my nice. um, oyster. But Birmingham uh, happened because of um, I came in to go to university. Okay, well, we'll we'll talk about that shortly. But what sort of music were you into growing up? Because given you've travelled around, some of the the music will have been different. Uh, Certainly rave music had different elements in different areas. Yeah, I mean, like I say, it's it's terribly non-cultured of me, but I I wouldn't say that I was a particular, like, mad muso. It really, it wasn't really until I started playing myself that I really focused on on music and what I really I just used to like going out and dancing and frankly whatever they were playing I mean the thing is it's interesting because I've got old um rave tapes where the mixing is absolutely shocking and I used to love those tapes love 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 them and then after I learned to DJ it was ruined because I could hear the train (laughs) just like shit but they were different days they were different days though weren't they where it was like you know they were they were they were mixing on a crate and uh you know people on stage and all that now and they also probably let's be honest because it was vinyl as well they a lot of them probably weren't very good DJs because DJing was there wasn't that many people doing it so it was like right they're the guys that do it now you really have to be shit hot because there's so much competition yeah yeah, and 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 it just goes to show, doesn't it, that in that the main focus really of your night out is is the tunes, the selection, and the you know and, and what they're actually playing. That's so, true. That's yeah. true. So and so, um, when did you develop that interest in in rave music? If 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 you were just a party goer at first, how did that change into becoming well, what you are now, which is a promoter well, and a DJ? I think uh, probably the the first proper party that I got involved in promoting was 93 and we did, um, we had a DIY party, Diggs and Wash played and so that was kind of you know, sort of techie, bit ravey, quite underground sound um, you know, but, but when I got my, I think I got my decks in 93 and at that point I was playing house music you know okay. Um, and so why, then, why, house, why house if you've been going to hardcore raves? I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> Fair enough. I expect maybe my first kind of box of records that I bought were house records. 
um, thinking back to a friend, Jay, in, in Bista, like, he, he sold me my first tunes, you know, I was like, well, I've got some decks, what am I going to buy? And, and just kind of went in and, and, and probably the, the guy behind the counter, it was his it was his influence that kind of started me off. I mean, it seems bonkers now, doesn't it? But I wasn't really thinking about it at the time, just, yeah, this is good, let's, let's mix. Okay. Uh, and what was your first rave, the one when you got your car and you were able to, to go to those first? What, what were your, your earliest raves? And can you remember? I mean, maybe you can't remember, actually, by the sounds of it. You probably well, can't remember what they were like. I mean, the, the whole rave thing was a complete accident. And it was uh, Gemini, um, I, who I really hope is going to watch this at some point. She lives in Thailand now. But um, she, uh, at school, was just like, uh, I've, I, I, we're gonna, I, need to get, I need somehow to get to this rave. I'll most pass the driving test. So she was like, come on, Mo, let's, let's go. And um, it, was a, it was a swing rave in Andover, um, which wasn't that far away. And I was just like, oh, whatever, you know, yeah, fair enough, I'll come with you. And um, obviously on the Coca-Colas because um, I was driving and it was very, that very night. Very good, there. Mo, well done, very good. Yeah, obviously very important not to drink Officer. and drive. Obviously. Uh, never mind the other. Yeah. And, um, you know, halfway through the night, I found myself on a podium, sweaty, and just like, well, okay, okay, this is the thing. I've, I've, I've kind of found my I found my future. And so, yeah, Gemini Adams, I totally blame you for my entire life um, in a good way. <laughs> well, I hope she does watch it. That'd be nice. But the car was the car was totally it, you know, literally every weekend just jumping in the car and going, you know, wherever. But again, you know, there was no there was no Internet then. You know, youngsters watching this now will not comprehend how insane it was. You know, if you if you went to a party, a free party um, two weeks prior and you said to your mate, I'll meet you in such and such a service station in two weeks time, you know, at seven o'clock on a Friday night or whatever. You, you were there because, you, you you know, obviously I've phones, but, you know, generally speaking, you didn't dick about. You just you, you stuck to the plan. Uh, and you found the convoy and you flip and followed that convoy come what may, because if you lost them, that was that was your night ruined. So I actually think that um, being a free party raver turns you into quite a good driver as well. <laughs> Probably quite a good promoter too, because you have to be very organised. Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, and what were the what were the your favourite early raves that you would go to? I mean, I went to uh, Spiral Tribe, squatted the Camden Roundhouse for a few days, I think maybe even a week, and I ended up at their New Year's Eve party there in '91, and that was utterly insane I mean the roundhouse anyway was an amazing venue it was derelict at the time I I can't even begin to imagine how dodgy it was I don't know who this whether they had security I'm sure we paid to get in but you can imagine inside it was just like dogs and kids and bonfires inside but it was absolutely like an amazing an amazing experience I have a feeling we went back there maybe a couple of days later but this is how crazy I think I went from spiral tribe straight off to Fantasia or the other way around um, and I think nothing of driving. And, I, and my car was a, it was a mini metro. I mean, it was like a I think it was a one litre mini metro, bright orange. And, <laughs> and, and and again, you know, no sat nav, none of that. And you just just drive and drive and go to the next wave. And then you know you find someone who needs to go somewhere. I'll take you home. And that was another hundred miles out your way. It didn't matter. Was it the community that really appealed uh, then in that in that regard? Totally. I think my entire life, if not just my sort of rave life has always been centred around my community, my friends. And what did your parents think when you were jumping in a car and oh, just heading Lord, off around mate. the country all my weekend? Dear, my dear parents, and I'm sure my, I've lost my dad now, but my dear old mum probably will end up watching this. So I love you, mum. 
but it's your fault too because you bought me the car. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she could be paid for that. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't until later in life, really, that they found out the sort of whole horrible truth about my my rave um, history. But um, they, I don't know. I mean, I I would I would get in my car on sort of Saturday afternoon and just drive off into the wilderness. And uh, quite often, I'd come back on Sunday morning. So I had a job working in a pub. So I'd, I'd go out raving all night. I'd be back at the pub for eight, clean the pub, get dressed, get changed, waitress in the pub in the afternoon, you know, no sleep, and then and then come home, eat some food and crash out on Sunday night, you know. But I, because I was I was good. I was I was a good girl. I went to school. I did A-levels, you know. I um I had a job. I was nice to my family. I was just a complete wreckage. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, and would you take inspiration from the raves that you were going to, good and bad, when you later – began to promote yeah I think um I think definitely um just it was all about and flashbacks ethos was all about the party you know I mean it was just we put so much effort into the detail um to the decor to the lineup to you know everything it really it should have been more of a money maker than it was but we always kind of just spunked that bit more to make it a little bit extra special mm. Well, that's always a balance, isn't it? Because then if you don't do enough, then people won't come to the next one. So it's... Yeah, yeah, you've got, yeah. You've got to balance out. And, and uh, okay, you weren't that into the music at that point, but at some point you did become into the music because you became a DJ. And if you hadn't, that would yeah. have been impossible. Which were the DJs that you really rated around that sort of time and you looked up to as inspirations? Um, and again, I didn't really sort of know individual DJs until I started booking them. Um, but I think I think my favourite... I mean, Jason K, Top Buzz, is an absolute diamond legend just totally lovely man he would phone me and ask me like how my family were doing and things like that so so much respect for him mickey finn's another one <laughs> he was my first kind of really um I, I was trying to get hold of him got a number through someone else and then and i had his number stored in my phone and then my phone rang one day and i was like oh my god mickey finn's ringing me ah! he'll probably laugh at this now but um yeah so so those guys really they've they've been there all the way along um Mark and Everson, Rat Pack, you know, there's just there's, there's loads actually. And what was your view on MCs? Because they do divide opinion. Well, again, in the hardcore scene, it, it wasn't such a big deal at the time. Obviously, you get someone like Everson, he 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 makes the whole Rat Pack experience. You know, you couldn't have Rat Pack without the MC. And we had um we had SL2, um, Slipmat Lime and JJ. You know, JJ was very important um to their set. We had Rayan from um Shades of Rhythm. So th those kind of MCs were always, and, and even when we started doing sort of some early jungle um, at Flashback, you know, we had like Fearless or GQ, MCs like that that would totally complement the set that was um, was happening. Hosts, they would host the set rather than just yatter all the way through it. So I think we've, uh, we, we can derive your opinion on MCs from that. Well, the, the drum and bass room at Flashback didn't have MCs for years. Right, and the, and the DJs used to absolutely love it. <laughs> we, we caved in in the end. We caved in in the end, but then um, a little a bit later, I started a night called Homegrown, um, which is a drum and bass night, and we didn't have MCs there either. What difference does it make? Oh, listen. I mean, you know, I I get it that um, having a crowd hyper is is fantastic. I mean, it really, you know, sometimes when I play a set and I haven't got an MC, at first I'm a bit like, oh, no MC to support you. Um, but actually, it, it puts the emphasis back on you to, to play a, a, a you know a, a sick set. That's a terrible word, isn't it? A great set. Um, <laughs> uh, I think Rap described, oh. described it as destroying the room. You know, you Literally know, did. 
it's 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 easier it makes your life easier with an mc i think but I, but i also really you can really get in the zone when there's no mc and you can just get in there and play your records or even like i say that, that second arena at flashback it was always packed in there the drum and bass room super sweaty no one complained that there were no mcs not for a long time okay um and so you eventually did decide to become a dj you did become interested in the music why uh, and at what point so, like I said, I got my decks in 93. I think. Yeah, I but why, why did you get your decks in 93? If you weren't interested in the music, something changed. Do you know, I <laughs> I think I, I think I came across a set of decks at my friend Stu, Stu Hackett. Here's another, there's another name. He had, a, he had a really cool student house, big detached house. He had decks upstairs. I went upstairs. I can, the way that I remember it is he came upstairs and was like, wow, who taught you how to, to beat match? And I was like, oh, the, the, no one's taught me how to beat match. Really? And I was like, well, okay, that's quite cool. Um, wow. And he was just like, "That just get some decks. I got some decks and went and bought my first records or whatever. And it was just, I think it was really being, um, the residency at Slag was the thing that really kind of set me off on a proper sort of DJ um, trajectory, to be honest. Okay. Well, we'll talk a bit about slag a, a little later. It's it's not what it sounds like. It's it's, it's an acronym. Uh, but um, so I mean, it was obvious then that you had a, a talent for DJing quite early on. I mean, it didn't it didn't seem to be a thing. It was quite. I mean, I want to I want to name drop another name here, which is John Hollis, who was the resident DJ and promoter of Crunch, which was a massive name in sort of Birmingham club history. Um, and he just said to me, you know, just don't touch the record when you're mixing. Use the pitch control to mix. And that piece of advice to this day has stood me in good stead. Um, and, and I don't know, just, yeah, I, I just loved doing it. I absolutely loved doing it. So, yeah, and, I was lucky, um, really lucky. Well, you moved to Birmingham for university to do your engineering degree. Was it, was it because Birmingham was a good place to do engineering? Just, or? Just, well, when, I, when I was at school, I had a, a boyfriend, so I decided I didn't want to go more than a two-hour radius from my mum and dad's house. So Birmingham is about as far away. And when I, you know, I, I did, I drove to all the, the you, you can put five choices down, I think, when you're doing your A-levels. And I, and, and, and I drove to each one. One was Reading. I went to Cardiff. And when I, went, when I came to Birmingham, something just felt really good. I, I couldn't really tangibly put my finger on it. You know, it just, the, the campus felt nice. Birmingham felt good. It was just like, this is the place for me. And again, it was just total potluck. So, you know. Oh, you owe a lot to it. And uh, so how long did it last with your boyfriend? <laughs> oh, he dumped me before my A-levels finished, yeah. No, that's always the way. I mean, that was what it's I was going to say. I mean, we, we all move somewhere for our partners, <laughs> don't we? For our like, early first loves. And then uh, it all goes horribly wrong. I've within a yeah, year no, of moving here. Yeah, a couple of weeks before my A-levels. Oh, cheers, mate. Yeah, yeah, lovely. Thanks. <laughs> oh, well, I'll fuck well, off I'm to over it now. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear you don't, you're still holding a grudge. Um, and, uh, you, I mean... Birmingham was was revelatory for you because you you did put on your first event at the uni there in 1993. Um, did you did you plan to put on events at university or was it sort of just a, a, no, a happy accident? No, not at all. And we were still first years, remember, at this point. So we'd been partying hard. We kind of met that we met the crew that were putting on the dance music parties. Um, we kind of were going to the weekend raves and stuff. And when we decided to do a party, they were all like, you're, you know, your first years, you can't do a party. But to be fair, you know, again, thanks to Stu, who's, whose decks I started life on, they had a little thing going on and they kind of helped us out. They had a society at the university that we were able to sort of borrow their name and kind of do it under their, uh, their, their, you know, 
their official sort of route into the university in terms of hiring the venue and stuff so we kind of learned early on that you, you you need you need help you need to work with people that have done it before um and um and it was a total sellout success you know i mean it was oh, only wow. like a 400 capacity venue only um, that's for the first but event was, that's amazing you know, it was it was great and it kind of it just demonstrated really that actually if you put your kind of heart and soul into something and it and it was genuine you know we weren't doing it for the money we were doing it just because we just wanted to put on a party so did anybody notable play at that party or was it a minor that was the dig and party and it, it obviously it obviously gave you the bug to carry on and then that same year you got your first paid book in as a dj tell us about yeah. that yeah, I can't even. I was trying to find a flyer actually before this um, interview, and I can't find the flyer. But I was on the flyer as DJ Mo, and it's a big white flyer, and um, and it was at a club in town. And um, I think I remember it being utterly nerve wracking. Um, I think I used to write my sort of set list down on a piece of paper just in case I, you know, got what I was doing. I mean, that seems like, early days. seems like I an eminently sensible thing to do, Mo. I can remember someone finding that list once and was like, what? And I was like, I know, I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, but that's what, but I mean, comedians write this stuff on their hands. I mean, it seems like right. a it seems like a sensible <laughs> thing to do to me. I mean, it's what it's what someone who is super organized, aka you, <laughs> would do. So uh um and and how did it go? I think okay. I mean, like I say, very hazy memories of the early nineties, I'll be honest with you. I don't think it was a disaster. So Did it come about be. did it come about from the promotion? I don't know. Okay. I think it was just we were we were well we were, we just there was a like there was a scene you know you were either in the scene or you weren't in the scene and if you were in the scene you know people knew people and like I say when I landed at uni in ninety two I had like like short dreadlocks I made my own clothes I mean I must have looked such a state from like the years of raving anyway um, but at the at the freshers ball they called it in the Deb Hall at the uni. Um, SL2 were playing. I mean, I was just like, this is fucking brilliant. You know, I've, I've, I've come to, I've given up my sort of rave. I gave up raving for a bit to do my A-levels. I thought I need, to, I need to knuckle down here. And then I landed and then, and then on that first, um, at that first party, um, Lisa, God rest her soul, spotted me. Um, she was a second year, you know, and she was just like, oh, you look like a nutter. Come and meet all my mates. And, you know, they were, they were the promoters and the DJs at the time. They put on, various warehouse parties they were the guys that started crunch so literally within the first few weeks of being at uni i'd, I'd found my people you know right. it was brilliant nice and you, you you used the name mo which did change later to mistress mo more of which later that's a reference to the slag thing um but without this being too daft to question mo how did you come up with your name <laughs> <laughs> You don't have to answer that i'm messing around uh did I, the music I've been mo since i was like four i mean you know i don't i don't I'm not even really. Are you sure mooring? Are you mooring? Are you mooring? I'm not mooring. No. Are you not? You have, to, you have to do your homework and find that one out. What is it? It's actually <laughs> Melissa. It's not that. Um... Why? Why is 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 Mo short for Melissa? No, it no. is in my Me, world. It, well, there you go. That's all that matters. Yeah. Um, Most and... people that I um that I'm in contact with now, because obviously everything's like email and and whatever, think I'm an Asian man, and then when they meet <laughs> me, they're like, "Oh, you're a white woman." Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Is that right? That's interesting. Yeah. Um, what? Well, not with your surname, Jones. There's not many Asian people called Jones. No, true. <laughs> and uh, did the music that you played change through the years? Um, totally. And you played it all. Uh, how, how how did it change as time? I went, mean, I'm went so by? fickle. You know, I know that there'll be sort of pure heads watching this, just like, oh, how could you possibly do such a thing? But like, 
um, yeah, so I started with house and then I, and then it was like handbag house for 94, 95, the kind of gay clubs, that kind of thing. Um, I, I had a hard house phase. I've played at Sunday Central. Um, and then it wasn't really, and then obviously the old school was kind of going on alongside this when, when we started doing flashback in 96. And then it wasn't until I think 97 and I heard jungle drum and bass for the first time. And I was just like, Right, you didn't okay. hear jungle until ninety six seven. Not not re- not proper like drum and bass. Not right, it was it, right. something something. Yeah, I think I heard a like um, world dance tape or something like that, and I was like, this this is the music for me. Right. Okay. Um, and I was still playing house, but I was going to play my house sets and then sort of racing to the nearest drum and bass club afterwards. So I was just like, this is you know this is silly. I'm going to play drum and bass now. Yeah, that would make I stopped, sense. Yeah. I stopped playing in the hard house and techno room at Flashback and started playing in the drum and bass room, much to, I'm sure, lots of people's like, you can't do that. I was like, oh. Well, did, did the fact Actually, that you played lots of different types of music over the uh, over the years impact on the number or quality of gigs that you got? Um, I don't think so. I mean, it's you know, everyone makes their choices in life, don't they? And I kind of, when I did the tour in 97, um, this young upstart called Lisa Lashes was playing as well. And um, and and then she went from sort of nothing to meteoric superstardom like overnight. And and I and I guess I was a little bit like, oh, I could have done that maybe if I'd put my if I'd just been a DJ. But you know, we were promoting the parties, we were soon to have the record shop, and it's like you, you really kind of need to be a bit more focused if you want to be. You know, if you want to be, if you want to be a superstar, really, is so. that why? Well, as well, down to the fact that you never produced as well, because of course, probably, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, I never, I made, it, I made it into a studio once. It was a Christmas present from my uh, long-suffering business partner Jimmy. Um, he got me a, a day in the studio with our dear departed um, Tango, actually, and uh, and I, lo- I did love it. But I realised again, if I'm going to do this, it's going to need a lot more time and focus than I've than I've got. So. So you went down that route instead, which mm. uh, has worked out for you quite well. We're going to talk about it next. Oi, oi, go check out the new digital six-track EP, A New Hype, from the 14-year-old DJ Seema. Yes, 14 on fullthecoolrecordings.bandcamp.com. That's fullthecoolrecordings.bandcamp.com. I mean, sounds more ravey in Essex than Warrington, though, doesn't it? We really hope you're enjoying yet another one of Raw's in-depth interviews about the rave scene, which we are proud to say are now all curated into the British Library Sound Archive. All of us here at Raw HQ love how much you love what we do, and your generous one-off donations have been a huge help in covering our initial costs. But we're now a team of five, putting in a combined 80 hours a week for no wages, with big plans to expand further, and so our costs are going up. As such, we could really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing, as you've seen us do since our launch in July 2020. First up, go and check out our brand new website. It's rawuk.com, where you can find loads of cool extra content, and you can grab Raw's first ever range of merchandise. That's rawuk.com for our new flashy website. We've also launched a new membership scheme where you can support us financially to create more content on an ongoing basis for less than the price of an oat milk cappuccino. 
plus you get great perks in return head to patreon.com forward slash raw uk pods that's patreon.com forward slash raw uk pods to see exactly what's on offer you can also join our youtube membership which is basically the same uh, or if you're not asked about a membership but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or a repeat donation then head to our website and click the paypal link a reminder of that new website url yet again rawuk.com big love and respect to you all please keep supporting us hope you enjoy the rest of the app on friday the 20th of august 2021 a new event return to source celebrating 90s rave hardcore jungle happy hardcore drum and bass and techno touches down at suki 10c in digbeth birmingham we have Fusion South Coast legend DJ Druid, Quest and Fiber Optics DJ Fallout, the uprising northern legend that is DJ Paulo, and London Town's final trickster playing his first happy hardcore set in over 18 years. Tickets are priced at only £14. Just search Facebook and Eventbrite for Return to Source Raid. Here we are on Raw with me, Tom Latcham, and Mistress Mo, a.k.a. Mo Jones. Uh, Mo, let's talk about Flashback now, because that's what you really are known for and famous for. Uh, you put on your first Flashback in 1996, becoming resident from day one, again at Birmingham University. Uh, I mean, I won't ask you how you became resident at your own event, because that sort of answers <laughs> itself. Uh, an old school event in the mid-90s. Why? I know it sounds a bit bonkers, doesn't it? But again, I, I have to credit um, Jimmy here, my business partner, because um, we we'd kind of worked together we'd seen other people putting on parties we were regulars at kind of crunch house nights and it was just like you know what no one plays rave music anymore you know he was really into sort of fantasias all the sort of big legal raves at aston villa leisure center um starlight those kind of gigs and um and yet we could there was nowhere we could go to hear that music so he was like well let, let's try that um so you know it, it, at that time it, yeah we called it old school <laughs> 96 but we were playing sort of 89 through 92 music so it kind of you know it was it was basically trying to re it was really at that point it was really trying to recapture that kind of rave um scene that we'd both loved um from slightly different perspectives um and and yeah and it just instantly was was kind of, kind of took off it was like we were, we were not the only people that were missing that kind of sound well, we ask uh, our audience for questions when we announce our guests. And if anyone wants to get in touch in the future with any questions when we announce, you can email us hello at rawuk.com or you can search for us at Raw UK Pods on all social media. And Ian S on Facebook has asked how it felt and how much of a risk it was to put on a 100% old school main room back in 1996. Well, it was risky because it was a new concept but it was we we reduced the risk because it was a university event and we were kind of a society at the university we were providing a service for students effectively so I can't imagine that it was very big budget stuff I don't think we had any real guest DJs at our first um event sorry to Tot and Simon M who both played but are both our buddies so um, I'm not sure they counted as kind of big. I mean, name you could have just pretended and and you know <laughs> massage their ego or something. <laughs> but you know, we we again, it's like going that extra mile, isn't it? So anyone who knows Birmingham University will know that the the club on the top floor um, sort of it opens out onto what was called Mermaid Square, big fountain, mermaid, and all the rest of it. And remember, these are the days before like people got very serious about things, and health and safety was like ridiculous. And we had a gyroscope, a full gyroscope, 
um, and we put speakers outside and it was a lovely evening. And so people just went outside and they were raving on the statues and raving on the tables okay. and the gyroscope was going. And it was just the whole thing was just crazy bonkers, but utterly brilliant. Yeah. So, you know, yes, it was it was risky, but it was low, it was low budget. And it was only really by selling the tickets and kind of getting the crowd in there that we then knew that, you know, the, the risk of the concept had kind of uh, had been proved. So you knew early doors that you were onto a winner. Yeah. What was it that you felt made you stand out from the crowd? I mean, obviously, being an old school event in '96, mate, it does that. In, <laughs> but what, but was there any, was there anything else about the event that made you stand out? I mean, I think um, you know we got booted out of the university. They they realised that we weren't students anymore. So I graduated in '96, and uh, and so that at the time felt awful. You know, sometimes really good things happen from bad yeah. things, don't yeah. they? And you have to kind yeah. of rather than feeling defeated, you just have to crack on. And that's when we put it to Crunch um, that we should host the upstairs room at Crunch. And so we took it from a student thing into town on a Friday night. And um, uh, and again, I think for it was a win-win for us because Crunch was a ridiculously popular night anyway. But once a month, they put us on upstairs and, and that opened up to a whole new um, audience. And so that gave us both the kind of the bigger budgets to put better DJs on and all the rest of it. So that was really our stepping stone into doing Flashback at the Q Club. Okay. Uh, well, Ian S, uh, again, he asks, he's obviously a big fan of Flashback. He says, was there, was there any plan that you and Pilgrim as residents would play less obvious tunes rather than banging out the obvious anthems that a lot, uh, brackets not all, of the guests would play? I mean, that is such a good question. Thank you, Ian. Um, I feel utterly privileged to have been Flashback's resident since day one because when you play that many sets and I, and I and I and I often did do the warm-up set but I'd quite sometimes I'd put myself on a cheeky you know main main type main slot set as well but the audience would trust me to play like ridiculously horrible underground tunes at times and they'd know that if they didn't like that tune well just hang on a minute because there'll be, there'll be a good one coming up in a minute and so yeah I mean you know Pilgrim um, is the same he, he never really reaches into his anthem uh, bags particularly um, and it was it was brilliant because it gave us that opportunity to just play really obscure stuff. I mean, not all obscure, you know, in a, in a set, you yeah, play some 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 bigger tunes and whatever. But you kind of always aim to take your audience on a bit of a journey. And um, and when you're doing a guest slot, it's hard to do that. It's hard to do that because, you you, you know, you, you haven't got that kind of relationship with your crowd. Um, so, yeah, great question. And, yeah, I'd like to think that there's quite a few um, undiscovered gems in my in my collection. Well, maybe you can do a guest mix for us, Mo. Uh, I'll ask you about that afterwards. Um, and uh, if she says no, by the way, uh, or that or one doesn't appear, it's because she said no. Um, so, um, no, no pressure, Mo. Uh, so, when did it become a job for you, and 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 ha and, ha and did it change the way that you felt about the whole thing? Because I know that in 1998, uh, you opened old school days. You also moved to the Q Club, so I, I imagine it was around about that time. But forgive me if I'm wrong. But um, is that around about when it became a proper job and you were I like, think, oh, I'm, I'm I think getting here. the shop getting the shop was the serious thing. You know, we had been doing flashback um uh, you know when we since the move to crunch and we started to widen our horizons then we started delivering flyers and posters sort of further afield, sort of midland, you know, go down to Oxford or whatever. And you know, we <laughs> we hired a Fiat Panda super black, thank you, Carlo um from this dude for I don't know how much a month too much and that was literally our office so we would sit in this 
fucking car with a box of flyers and, a, and tickets and whatever. And we would drive around the country. And while we were driving, we'd be sorting out lineups and cash and all that kind of stuff. It was it was insane. And so by the time we got the the, the shop, it was it was basically to, to use it as an office. And at that point, it just felt like, you know, box ticks. But again, we used the Prince's Trust. We put a business plan together. We worked with South Birmingham Enterprise Centre. So again, it was kind of, we had the support to to do something like that and again it, it, you know for the youngsters wanting to get involved you know go go and get help go and seek you know um whether it's you know local authority or whatever people are out there to help you get a head start in life and and, and we used it you know i think we got a three and a half grand grant which at the time was like an insane amount of money it was it was amazing yeah. but the, yeah so the shop was the start of, of it being more serious for sure Okay. Um, and so you, you, you used it, you, you, it was meant to be an office, but it obviously was a record shop too. Um, and in it, you will have become one of the sort of hubs of rave music in Birmingham. That must've been a heck of a lot of fun. Oh, it was, it was awesome. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was ridiculously hard work. You know, we'd, we'd open at like 10 or something, but we'd, we'd be open till six, seven o'clock, uh, six days a week. There was only me and Jimmy um alongside running the shop we'd be still delivering flyers and posters to to everybody uh, for flashback um you know it was it was long long hours but I can remember like mates who sort of from Wheelie Castle would get off the bus you know and they'd come in and have a smoke and when it was okay to smoke indoors and listen to tunes and you know it was it was a very it was a very it was blink party hard play hard as I think was the ethos of that time sure um it wasn't all fun either though uh, i'm going to fast forward very very slightly for one vignette uh, you got nicked in 2004 for selling drugs <laughs> tell us oh it was absolutely horrendous so at that time there was a legal loophole in, in with the old magic mushrooms um so it was a kind of we, we were a bit of a head shop as well we were selling sort of legal hires and that kind of thing and um as long as your mushrooms were fresh they were classed as a produce not a product so jimmy being the resourceful chap that he is found an old coke fridge from somewhere like a big tall coca-cola fridge and, and that was our mushrooms fridge and you, you know we had hawaiians and you know mexicans and whatever and people would come in and we kind of advise them about what doses to have and all this i mean yeah to be fair we shouldn't really have been selling magic mushrooms to people but they were brilliant and they, they, were were they were legal and they were legal i mean we paid back on them this is the ridiculous thing you know we, we from our supplier we were paying the government back so we kind of felt like we were okay we didn't sell ecstasy tablets because that was illegal right yeah, we yeah, didn't yeah, sell yeah. marijuana but we sold magic mushrooms anyway uh, one day Jimmy popped out to get a burger or a sandwich or something and at exactly that moment the police decided to raid <laughs> the shop full wow. on bands blue flashing lights this that and the other and they all kind of trooped in like it's a drug and it was just like dudes the drugs are in that fridge there with a sign on it and a, and a menu and like a price list and here's all my invoices with VAT on them and you know but it was a scary thing because actually the charge was um intent to supply a class a drug you know i was on bail for nine months really? i spent a lot of money on solicitors fees you know and it was like um it would have gone to crown court because of the severity of the charge you know and i was looking at potentially i think i think i think the stretch was like seven years or something like that Christ. so it was you know i laugh about it now but at the time it was horrific uh but in the end it got thrown out because the judge was just like look i don't agree with what you're doing but this isn't the way, you know, I can't risk putting these people inside for seven years. 
uh, I'm going to throw it out. And, and we always thought, you know, that is the way the British judicial system works. Apparently, you you have a few test cases, and that and that kind of sets right. the. But it would have been so much easier than say we've now decided that psilocybin is a whatever mm. class drug, and you can't sell it anymore. We've gone okay, fair enough. So uh, what, did we, what, what did your mum think of all this? I don't know if I told her at the time. <laughs> Does she know now? I hope so. <laughs> oh well, she does now. Hello, Mrs. Jones. A little funny um, stories now. Well, so uh, you obviously—I uh, mean, you've said yourself you're a wreckhead. How do you balance being a wreckhead with doing all this stuff, which need, which needs an incredible amount of organisation? Infinite um, resilience, I think. I mean, well, like I say, I've got—I've kept—I kept diaries for years like really detailed diaries and when I read them now I'm I literally cannot understand how I managed to do what I did you, you know, should I release say, though say, you should say, you should do that as a book <laughs> uh, I don't know if anyone's really that interested in my rave antics but it'd be fun you know, it, I think, it, I think it, you'd sell a few <laughs> it would literally be Friday night and Saturday night and you know and like I say but it it, it it started early like I say I used to I used to go to school and do a cleaning job and go raving it was just I think you know if you if you've if you've got that kind of work I don't know if it's work ethic I don't know what it is it's just yeah it was, that has been my life and that's pretty much been my life all the way through even till now late nights early starts lots my of girl, my girlfriend describes me as and this is probably it reflects upon you what you are it is that i'm the most sensible naughty person that she's ever met <laughs> that's a good I'm, i feel like yeah i'm a sensible naughty person <laughs> yeah and, and that's not a bad <laughs> yeah. that's not a bad thing you know because it means that you can have fun but you can also uh you know run your life without it all collapsing into a, a disaster um yeah. So back to flashback, uh, 1998, you held your first flashback at the Q Club in Birmingham, Cy, Groove Rider and Rat Pack. What was it that made you decide to take it to another level? Was it just that it was so successful where you where you were previously? Um, again, um, a helping hand, an external helping hand. So I got a phone call. My agent, actually, at the time on the, on the DJ tour, got a phone call from a chap called Gerald Bailey. And um, I had this very sort of cryptic message, like, my name's Gerald Bailey. Um, People know who I am, so do your homework. I'd really like to meet you. Um, and it turned out that Jez was the um, promoter of Atomic Jam with Danny. And so we went for a meeting at his uh, office in um, in Wolverhampton. Diffusion was his clothing shop. And I can still remember it to this day, like, you know, being a little bit sort of terrified and a bit like, what, what what's going on here? And he was like, you know, I've been I've been watching what you've been up to. I've seen the the sellout events you've been doing at, at Crunch. You know, you need a bigger venue. Uh, how do you fancy doing the Q Club? I mean, Jimmy were just like, what the, like, uh, yeah. And um, and he went, you know, my my buddy's Groove Rider. Do you want to book him? And we were like, yeah. So really, you know, it was it was the start of a of a wonderful working relationship with those dudes. You know, Danny and Jez. Thank you, because we definitely couldn't have done it without them. Um, but you know, so they were they Danny Jez's uh he promoted Quest, they had Atomic Jam, you know, Danny had been involved with Ratty Tango and Fallout. You know, they they you know they literally just propelled us to the next level. Amazing. So, yeah. Um and I what your career's had lots of lucky happenances. It's great, it sounds great, fantastic. How what, what, what <laughs> I'm a not nice business, but I do occasionally say a little thank you just in case. <laughs> Well, it's all right. It's all being paid back over the last year, I would imagine. Um, and uh, Ashley, uh, Ashley Boudou, uh on Facebook asks, my favourite flashback was the fifth birthday. That DJ size set at the end was fire. What was Mistress Mo's favourite flashback? Ooh, 
Wow. Um, I mean, I think the Christmas special 2001 was an amazing event. And I think it was so amazing because it wasn't really deemed to be a special event. It just something happened that night. It was just so, so electric. I mean, we had we had one in June at the Q Club and it was the night of a England football match. I think we beat Germany like five nil or something like that. And that was amazing. So we could hear the queue outside. And then all night the MCs were boning on about this amazing win. <laughs> so that that was quite an obvious one. But I think, yeah, Christmas 2001. And then and then this sorry tale about the last, the last ever, the last ever. People always say it's the last ever. It's like we we were told in 2011 that that was it. Q Club had been sold to hotel developers. It was the last one. And so, again, going this sort of extra mile, we, um, we said we've got a surprise for you at six o'clock. Don't go home. So at six o'clock in the morning, instead of closing like we should have done, we had a set with Mickey, Bass, Lenny for an extra hour. And nice. that was because you only had the proper hardcore ravers still there at six o'clock yeah, in the morning. Yeah. No one really knew what was going on. So it's like you had to have faith to have stayed. And, and, and that hour, six till seven on that last one, that was magic. Yeah. My kids. Um, well, Ian S again. He's a, as I say, he's a big Q, Q Club fan. He, <laughs> he, he, he's asking about the Q Club getting closed. He said, "How frustrating was it that the Q Club kept getting closed, and you know, last ever event due to redevelopment? Then nothing happened. Then it reopened, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Well, we only did we only we only did two last ever events. <laughs> so the amount of grief I get for it, you might have thought we'd done four or five, you know. But we literally did that one in 2011. And it was it was proper sad. You know, we were all sad at the end. It was very emotional. We'd had this amazing set, um, you know, and that and that was that. And then I think it was only eight months later that the, the, the managers at the Q Club came back and went, oh, it's all falling through. Do you want to do another one? And we were just like, oh, for fuck's sake. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's going to be really disingenuous to do another one. But then on the other hand, why would we it's not fun. do another one? If it's not closing, then, you know... Um, so, so that was really frustrating because it did, I think it did dent our, um, our right. reputation a bit. It dented our credibility. You know, people were then questioning, was it, was it just right. a money-making scheme? It wasn't a money-making scheme, you know? Um, and even now, you know, the place is still empty. It's absolutely tragic. It's such a beautiful building. Um, I mean, any I chance with... it might reopen or is it, is it, it's gone now? It's, it's. I stayed in the Grand Hotel this weekend, like, fortunately, a, a, an anniversary treat with my dear husband. And that has been derelict for 20 years. And it cost them 54 million to do it up. Now, it's a bit bigger, I think, that than the Q Club. And they were obviously doing it up to hotel standards. But I just can't, I just can't. It's such a money pit. The whole fabric of the building is just, you know, when we used to do the reunion parties in there, we would go in there during the day and get the sound guys to set up their sound system and play the dirtiest, heaviest bass all day as loud as they could because chunks of plaster would fall out of the ceiling. And we were like, we need that. We need that all to happen during the day before the ravers get in here because we can't provide everyone with a hard hat. You know, I mean, there were doors, literally doors roped up to the ceiling to hold the worst bits of the plaster so i think it would i think it would take you know i used mm. to say if i won the lottery i'd sort the q club out it would take a lot more it'd have to be a euro millions euro million, yeah and, and how, do you, how do you feel about all that and 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 you know i never went to q club unfortunately oh. um which would have I, I hear all i hear about it is, is incredible things uh so i feel like i've really missed out but you know how, how, did, how did you feel when it finally shut and how do you feel now to see it there's still bloody empty uh you know not the, not you I know think, just sitting there i think sadly it's inevitable i think you know i think that, that because the club scene had kind of moved on because of commercialism because of 
health and safety. I just think the Q Club had its day. And, you know, I must point, uh, I must say a big thank you here to, to Jez um, Collins, who's who's sort of curated this in the Q. So if, you, if you're interested in the Q Club, go and look at this in the Q. We're going at some point to have an exhibition when we finally get a chance. He's made a film about it. So it's been well documented, even from well early, much before the kind of rave scene. Um, I, I just, I just think it's just, it, it's just one of those sad things that you're not, you, we're not going to be able to do anything about it. But I'll tell you a quick story. The first, in that 98, that first Q Club gig we did in June, I'd been busy doing all the office and admin stuff at the shop all day. And Jimmy had been down the club with the, with the dudes doing the, the sort of deco and the sound system and stuff. And then I ended up getting down there with my box of records and it, it was already open. And I kind of got up on the main stage and I kind of put my records down. And I turned round to look at this like cathedral arena full of inflatables and lasers and backdrops and literally just I, I, I did I cry? I might have cried. It was it was an unreal sight, breathtaking, you know, that kind of space. So, yeah, it was epic. Yeah, I can't imagine what it must have been like. Uh, that, that Jim Flynn on Insta says you're a top booking, by the way, for Raw. And he asks, favourite Q Club story? Is it that memory or, or, or are there others that stand out in your mem in your memory? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, that obviously that first night is a good one. Taking a, we used to call them Q Club virgins. So we'd, we'd lead a Q Club virgin all the way in, all the way down those long corridors, up the stairs at the back. And then we'd, and then we'd pop them out the up at the top of the main arena. So they'd look at the stage and kind of watching the expressions um, was brilliant. And, you know, and I used to, um, after my sets or before my sets, you know, I'd, I'd love that place. I'd go and stand up there and just rave, you know, it's just like, it's all very well being downstairs in the box office, boring. Um, so luckily I had other people to do that or even on the stage was wicked, but you're on the stage looking like a knobhead or just go and have a good old rave of the rave. You know, there's, there's something uh, I, I think that incredibly special and, and very few experiences that I've ever had in my life top standing above a busy, big packed rave where everyone's going mad and just watching it and uh, like the, the the thrill of it i love people i love seeing people dancing i love seeing people yeah. having a good time and just the thrill of that i remember there's like oh uh, was it i found a spot on uh, slam and vinyl new year's eve i found a spot like in the sanctuary which was like i don't know i don't know why it was there it's like a ledge and i sat on this ledge really high <laughs> and just and they, and they did the countdown and i, I just looked to my mate and i was like <gasps> this is the fucking shit man like we're gonna <laughs> this is it this is what we're gonna do man like because i didn't get into raven until quite late which is why i probably didn't go cute but like it, yeah it was just like whoa look at all these people having such a great time this is buzzing so uh yeah totally, and I totally, totally, totally you just you're just riding the wave of that aren't you just feeling it and, and again because the key club is like an amphitheater all of those seats around the side and then right up the back were seats yeah. So if you're if you're feeling a bit tired or a bit jaded, you know, I'm sure that's how we, we got away with doing six o'clockers for so long because you could just kind of have a little sit down and you were still totally part of it, you know. Mm, mm, that's interesting. And, and and was the closure why you stopped doing regular flashbacks? Well, not really. I mean, we did um we did our tenth birthday in two thousand and six. That was at the custard factory, and then we did these kind of reunion parties, two thousand eleven, twelve, and fourteen. But to be honest with you, you know, we look through, we look with rose-tinted spectacles now at how good those parties were. I think they were quite hard to sell at that point. I mean, you needed to put 2,000 in the Q Club to, to make any any kind of money and for oh, it to right. look really good. Right. And I have a feeling those last couple of reunions were hard. I think, I can't remember if it was the last one. I think we broke even at like midnight on the door. 
And we're like, bloody, hell, you know, all this work and effort to literally break even. What, why do you? Time. Why do you think that was? I just don't. I don't know. Obviously, we look back now, and it was all so special and and whatever. Whether whether we were a bit spoiled, whether by twenty fourteen, which was that last one, people kind of 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 sort of our generation were kind of they were sort of going off and having babies and and having proper jobs and not really realizing this special thing that they they'd left behind at that point um we never really appealed to students so we didn't have that take up you know this q club was always this big scary place it was a very mixed crowd um so i just don't think we i don't think we had enough new blood coming into it to uh, to keep it going to be honest well derek smith on facebook asks will there be another flashback um and when and 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 my question is if there if if there is to be uh more uh what would a, re a flashback reunion the next one look like in your mind so one of the things that i take really seriously is the is the importance of flashbacks to so many people it's it's like one of those kind of sacred things you know flashback was an amazing rave in an amazing space it, it's got so many precious memories to so many people and I've been asked loads and loads to do more parties, the armchair ravers, as we call them. I don't see flashback in a nightclub. I, don't, I just don't. It just seems like it's belittling the kind of might that was the flashback that, that went before. But when um, Pete Weird Science asked me to do an arena at the Legends gig in 2019, that ticked all the boxes. It was a massive outdoor marquee, big stage, big sound. Um, there were other great brands there, you know, like Money Pennies and God's Kitchen and Sunday Central. They were all there. It was a daytime event, <laughs> very important to Helps. the elderly raver. Yeah. <laughs> so that was that. I felt like that was special enough to to sort of bring the flashback brand out of retirement. And that something like that will be if we do another one. And I really think we probably will do another one. I just need to find the right space. It will be a daytime rave. It will probably be outdoors. Will it be a solo event, do you think? Uh, I don't know because, you know, we are all knocking on a bit now and I know people say they're keen to come out, but but, but will you mm. come out? And, will mm. you know, tickets would have to be expensive nowadays. Things cost a lot of money. DJs cost a lot of money and it's risky. You know, I think the last budget for the Q Club was like 25, 30 grand. That's a lot of cash, you know? So uh, potentially doing a, a joint thing or, or licensing the brand to, 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 to be part of a bigger event is perhaps a safer thing, but it'll, I'll only do it if it's right for flashback. Maybe you can get in touch with the, the Prince's Trust again. <laughs> I think I'm a bit too old for that now. It's the young people, isn't it? <laughs> well, get some young people involved and then they can apply for you on your behalf. Uh, you, you talk about, um, the, I mean, it's risky, obviously, being 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 a promoter and you, you, you just you just highlighted some of the risks there and why it's often better to to share the load, so to speak. Um, have you ever had any absolute disasters? I, you know, we had Chris Paul on the other week talking about Orange and he put on an event. He was telling the story, he put on a big event at the Essex uh, race ground or something uh, show ground in and there was a there was an issue with the traffic and people couldn't get there and he lost 60 grand uh i mean my my horrific story is quite similar the 10th birthday in 2006 sold out i think the license was about 1500 at the custard factory and again it was a bloody football day it was an england world cup day and um we'd done these like e-tickets and so people were giving a code to come in rather than handing over a piece of paper and it was slow it was it was too slow you know it was quite it was quite a new concept at that point e-ticketing people didn't know their number or whatever and um we only had about 900 through the door and then the police turned up and because the queue was so long all the way down Digbeth High Street 
uh, is this, I, I'd like to name it, but I'm not going to, lovely police officer insisted that we were already up to capacity and shut the door. And so we shut out, you know, 700 people, 800 people, nearly half, um, which A, they were destroyed. B, any promoter will know it's the last few hundred tickets that actually make you any um, money. So we'd gone from this glorious celebration of 10 years, sold out, you know, wonderful, should have been the best night of my life kind of thing, um, to this horrific shit storm. And then spending the next, you know, normally after an event like that, when you've worked so hard to put it on, driving all around and staying up late and all the rest of it, normally you like collapse in bed for the next few days and recover. But no, we were straight back in the shop, mm. queue of angry people out the door, you know, wanting refunds and stuff. So it was it was a hard way to learn a lesson. But then out from that experience grew the kind of e-ticketing side of what we do now. You know, we were one of the first people to kind of do QR codes and, and sort of make it all electronic. Um, so it was a really hard, harsh way to kind of learn that lesson. But again, kind of looking for silver linings. <laughs> It's, uh, it's done us well now, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll talk more about ticketing and what it's been like. I'm interested to know the, the differences between the, then and now, and we'll, and we'll come to that later. But you are, as we've said, uh, one of the rare females in the scene. So very next, very shortly here on Raw, we're going to talk to you what it's like to be such a significant female in the 90s rave scene. Your name's not Dan, you're not coming in. <laughs> This is Raw, the 90s Rave podcast with Tom Latcham. That's me and Mo Jones, Mistress Moan. That's it. That's it. Uh, you are, as we've said uh, several times during this interview, one of the few female rave artists from the 1990s. But let's start as Mo the Raver. Um, what were raves like in the 1990s for women to attend? So I went to some pretty dodgy raves, I'll be honest with you. Um, so so I've, got, I've got both sides, really, because I went to some of the legal parties as well. Um, the illegal side of things, I, I feel very lucky to have got away with it. But again, it was like I was 17. I'd driven there like, you know, 100 miles from my from the safety of my family home to meet buddies. And they were utterly amazing. It didn't matter what colour you were, what sex, how old you were. Everyone was just there. Everyone had sort of united in this in in this party, and then, and sometimes they were you know they'd be blocked off by the police, and you'd dump your car, and you'd be running across fields. Sometimes it was warehouses, you know, the Holloway Road in London was one, you know, and it was all about that sense of achievement that you've made it in, you know, you were in the rave, and you know it was really naughty, but it was bonkers and, and great. And I mean, I, I can remember one warehouse party, someone had a football, and we we're kind of just all running around kicking a football, you know, you just you never get away with. So, so that kind of naughtiness and that total sense of freedom in the free party scene. And then, you know, in the morning, someone would like a bonfire or whatever. Um, and then the other side of that, I did, I did do um, uh, in 92, my uh, boyfriend at the time had a, a gyroscope. And so he, um, he was working at Fantasia Summertime. So we got to Fantasia summertime in the afternoon and set this gyroscope up and then kind of waited for everybody to come in. And so, you know, saw Fantasia summertime from start to finish and what an amazing rave that was. And did some of the big Fantasias down at Exeter um, Arena, West Point, West, did some of the gigs down at, um, oh, what's the one um, down south of uh, Bath and Bristol? You know, so just incredible. People were just there for the moment no phones you know none of that just just totally on on the vibe enjoy enjoying the rave 
Well, we often hear how prevalent it is for women to be sexually harassed, assaulted even in bars and, and nightclubs. Were 90s raves different? Did they feel safer than other places? And, and if they did, why do you I think didn't, that I mean, I was a teenager, right? And teenagers don't have a kind of a, a no. safety awareness thing going on. You know, we, we would be in these dark places. There would be no security. I think, you know, talking to friends of mine that, that, I was, that, that came on these journeys and these adventures we were we were really lucky to get away with it we were never mugged we were never attacked um I think they were self-policing I can remember seeing someone dragged up on stage and beaten up actually and they'd caught him um mugging people and that was how the sort of free party people dealt with it you know you you come here and you you mug our guests you, you get beaten up on stage that's how it how it works um but I'm, I'm, I guess I guess I'm just I don't know whether it didn't happen or whether I was just lucky but it, it, it's not something really that well, that's you know, good. That I, I've ever had to worry. Uh, well, De Martin, who is a female audience member of ours, not only that, she's a female producer, and we've played one of her tunes on our raw track attack. So uh, go and hunt that out because uh, cracking tune. Um, she asks on Insta, I'd be really interested to learn about the gender distribution in the scene. Was it 50 50 men and women at raves? Were women more common in certain occupations? I don't think it was 50 50 I think raving has always been male dominated and I don't know again why is it because the men were more oh, I, I, I'm hazarding guesses here why do more men go to football I don't know um I don't I don't I don't ever feel like even even now actually um you know uh, I still go raving hospitality is my favorite I like the all dayers um there's definitely more women I think now than there was then um because those raves are really safe aren't they they're very accessible it's a very sort of white middle class crowd it's quite young um quite quite studenty and whatever and so i guess this i guess the safer it feels that the more likely you are to get women there i've got to be honest that flashback it was definitely you know be lucky if it was 20 percent women to be fair but it was, <laughs> really? it was kind of it was it was kind of 50 50 black and white so racially, we were very well distributed, <laughs> ticked a lot of equality yeah, boxes yeah. there. But I think from a gender perspective, it, it wasn't. But it Why was... do you think that is? Because, I mean, obviously on stage, they've got you as a role model. So you'd hope that that might have had some influence, but apparently maybe not. No, no, I don't think so. I just, I, th I think it must, I think it does come down a little bit to that sense of, you know, why do you go raving? Because your mates are going raving. So if you've got a gang of, a gang of guys, we're all going to go raving tonight, you know, and it, and it might be that, you know, the girls go off and do something else. I don't know. But I think with the Q Club, it was, it was always, there was that documentary, wasn't there, about the the dealers at the Q Club and the, they showed those kind of long, dark corridors. And, you know, it was always, there was always a fight or two happening and it mm. didn't have a particularly great reputation. So I don't know if it just right. didn't feel like somewhere the girls were happy to to kind of go. And in, and in terms of rave artists why do you think there were so few this is where we're going to try and get into the crux of this I, I i mean i wonder was the is the situation down to promoters is it down to protectionist djs is it a lack of role models or is it perhaps even situational down to women perhaps eventually getting to a certain age wanting families and let's be honest being djing uh, being a dj you have to put in the hard hours. It's like stand-up comedy, isn't it? You know, there's not that yeah, many female yeah. stand-up comedians because you can't short-circuit the experience of playing on a crap setup in front of, you know, in a small <laughs> event. But unfortunately, those events, you know, if you're talking about comedy, they're sort of in 
you know, far-flung places that are maybe full of men. Uh, all the comedians are men. It's all men. And it's just not very appealing for a woman to go and, you know, travel for three hours to do that, to play event at one hour and then, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's that because I think, um, you know, as women choose to have families later in life, I think there is plenty of scope from sort of whenever, you know, 17, 18 through to 30, 35. You, you, you can you can put your hours in and you can do your traveling and you can do your you can do your sort of smaller clubs and stuff so before that sort of desire to settle down kicks in I guess I guess lack of role models at the time potentially because it is a, it is that isn't it you, you know you, generally it's like you want to see people doing oh you know and, and giving you that aspiration I just don't know if I don't know if it's because boys are more confident mm. They see another chap DJing and getting all the, the glory and the girls, and they're like, I want a piece of that. Whereas, you know. And as you pointed out earlier, it doesn't matter if they can't necessarily even DJ because <laughs> they don't give a fuck. They're just like, yeah. I'm up on stage. <laughs> I, I, I think it's better now. I, I right. genuinely think there are, you know, there are definitely more female DJs doing it. They're more acceptable. The only thing, this is something else, when, when I was thinking about chewing this issue over, I was thinking, because I'm a resident DJ and I know, and it's fine, that. When you look at that stage, it doesn't matter how good the tunes are and you see the resident DJ, you don't have the same feeling as when you look at that stage and it's Fabio or Groove Rider or someone like that. You know, there, there is definitely that sort of status thing, that sort of fame, you know, and it's the same It's the same as a warm-up band at a gig, I guess, and then, and then the headline band coming on. There's something pretty special about that. Um, and does that kind of then translate to the to the female thing? No bloke is ever going to admit to looking up at the stage and being a bit disappointed to seeing a bird. The same way that you know, uh, no one ever admits to voting Tory. Um, but I do wonder if there's a little bit of that. If the promoters are worried, if I put a girl on, you know, are my crowd going to like it as much? Am I going to sell as many tickets? Well, that's something DJ Rap said during our interview. And by the way, if you haven't listened to that interview, we we met up face to face a few months ago, and it's a really interesting chat about that. She 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 says that, in a way, she had to put on masculine qualities i suppose whatever they might be in terms of like you know i don't give a fuck what you think mate or i'm going to smash it and you know they and i and i hear about this in my day job as well where we where i work with uh, underrepresented people in in sport that you know say for instance british asian footballers they have to try 20 percent harder because mm. they're, they're they're starting from a lower base so in the same sort of way you know rap was like well i've got to be i've got to be the very best i can be and i'm going to destroy those rooms and and I, and I guess I don't know. Maybe I'm asking you as a woman. Maybe it takes it's, there. It's are, it takes a certain sort of woman to be like that. It's absolutely right because you put a lot of pressure on. I and I think even even in 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 all scenarios, women put a lot of pressure on themselves. They're very keen. Women are very keen to doubt themselves. Very quick to doubt themselves. You know, which they which they shouldn't do. And I think that does happen more to women than it does to men. And so you do have to go that extra mile. You do have to know you've destroyed that dance floor, so that when you come off, you, you're like, oh, "I've done a, I've done a blinking good job there. I'm happy, I'm happy with that." Um, and so, yeah, because because of that, maybe that makes that step to actually doing it that much harder. Because you know, if I'm going to do it, I, you know, I, I need to be that much, much better than the than the boys' club. You know. Um, we often hear male rave artists saying things like, well, there were plenty of women in the 90s rave scene. They were just behind the scenes running things, you know, Chemistry and Storm ran Metalheads. And, you know, there are other people who they who they point out. But it, it just, I mean, how does it make you feel that women don't really get credit for being the creatives or the DJs? They basically just helped organise, much like in, in, in the nuclear family, really. 
I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really have a chip on my shoulder about it. I spoke to Fallout, actually. I asked her opinion about this and she was like, I've never, I've never thought about it. I don't have a chip on my shoulder. I don't consider, you know, I've, I've, I've always got on great. I've done, I've done a good job. I think in the festival industry that I work in now, most of the festivals are run, owned by blokes, but run by women. Nearly all the event management um, companies and the event teams are, are women and, and women are trusted to do that job. You know, you think about DJ agencies, a lot of the DJs. I mean, it's probably, probably more that men aren't trusted to do the job. Yeah. I mean, this is gross generalizations, and I know. I know, of course. It's kind of like, it's kind of like that women will be like quite satisfied that I know that I've done a great job because of my organization. This, this party or this festival is going to happen. All the boxes have been ticked. The health and safety has been signed off. All the rest of it. You boys go out and take all the credit, and we'll we'll sit here just quietly and 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 relish the the accomplishments that we've we've had. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And when you became an artist, did you ever experience any sexism, either overt or, or or covert? I don't think. If I did, I probably just didn't notice. If people were trying to be sexist to me, I mean, I, I don't, don't get me. I'm so lucky because I've never had to do that ass licking thing. I've never been that bothered about being a DJ. If you give me a gig, that's great. If you don't want to give me a gig, that's also great. Because I had flashback and people wanted to play there, I'd quite often get offered a gig in the hope that there'd be a reciprocal gig in the making. Right. So I've never, I've never really had to do that thing where I've had to put myself out there. And that, that, that I know that I'm really fortunate for that. Well, do you think your career would have been any different if you'd have had a penis rather than a vagina? Probably wouldn't have been as good. Really? Because to be honest, I know for a fact, um, I played the main dance tent at Shambhala Festival in 2018. And I know they booked me because I'm a woman, because they told me, because they're beautiful and they, you know, they're lovely people. I've played late night sets at various different venues at Shambhala Festival for over 10 years. So I've earned my stripes, you know, I've done the four o'clock set, I've done the, the 5 a.m. set, you know, smashed it out the park, modestly, she says, every time. <laughs> and so when I got the call to say, do you want to do the, and it wasn't it wasn't like Sunday afternoon, which I thought it was going to be, it was Saturday night. Do you want to play the, like one of the headline sets Saturday night, warming up for, you know, I think it was Crust, uh, Clue, I can't remember, I was so excited, I can't even remember who I warmed up for, but um you know, it was an absolutely awesome, awesome set. It was possibly one of the best sets I've ever done. Now, I wouldn't have got that set if I'd been a bloke, I don't think. I'd have still been playing the late night venues. Right. Um, and I and I knew when I got that call, this is going to be like probably the, the best set you've ever played in, in a massive marquee, heaving Saturday night. I think Next Men played first. And it was so cool. They even had like um, two trolleys so that they could set your kit, your kit up exactly how you wanted it. So when they went off, they took oh. their kit off and your kind of kit... And it was like, right, so what do you need? And I went, two decks and a mixer. And I was like, no. And I was like, I'm really sorry. I don't I don't even play CDs or any of that digital stuff. So literally like two decks and a mixer. And I was like, yeah, that's do you it. Do, that? do you do digital now or are you still all no. vinyl? Wow. Mo, you've got to get with the fucking times, man. I know. I Come know. Come on. You know you can do loads of cool shit with these controllers now. I know. I know. <laughs> well, listen, I, you know, I have I have handed over the reins of my business actually, um, not too long ago, and I, and and this newfound sense of freedom, certainly music is 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 an area that I, I definitely want to come back to because I I keep hearing that you know come on my about, about you might, time. maybe, maybe you might get in the studio. I know what my records look like, and I know where they are. So when I'm playing, I'm like, oh, I need that one with the red cover. Where Creature is it? Creature of habit. It? I'd have to learn. I'd have to learn the names of all my records, and that would be tricky. 
Yeah, that is tough. That is, that is one of the tough ones. Um, maybe you might get. Is that you know, if you this newfound thing, are you going to get in the studio? I don't know. I think it might be a bit big-headed to think that I might be any good in the studio. I've no clue. Well, you Probably only find that one way, way, don't you? <laughs> yeah. So DJ Rap is the name that immediately springs to mind when you think of female rave artists from the 90s. What's your opinion of rap as a DJ and a producer? Listen, I had so much respect for rap back in the day, and I always felt she had not been given the credibility that she deserved. She made fire tunes. I mean... Divine Rhythm is my, I paid 50 quid for that record and I don't regret it for one second. I've rinsed it. I've played it so many times. Um, just she's, she's legendary. She's beautiful. She's intelligent. Um, she mixes well. She produces well. I mean, what is not to love? And I really respect and, and hope for her that she now gets the kind of credibility, the, 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 you know, the recognition that she um, deserves and does well with her new project. Well, when I interviewed her, I said that, uh, or rather she said that people ask her all the time why she didn't do more to help women, but nobody ever asks that of a man. And, uh, you know, no. I'm, a, I'm as guilty as anybody of not asking people that question. And I, I regret it now. You know, I've spent the last nine months interviewing male rave artists from the 90s, and I regret not asking them why they didn't do more to increase diversity on, you know, behind the decks. But um, what, what, what do you make of her viewpoint there? Well... I, I just think you should try and give a leg up to whoever you can. And that's, yeah. for me, that's where the homegrown rave came from. Because at Flashback, it was just, there was no opportunity to give up and come in talent a go. So homegrown was a weekly drum and bass night. And it was all about the first two sets of the night were to people that had sent in cassette tapes. <laughs> um, you know, um, so I do, I do think you should try and give people a leg up. I'm a big believer in karma you know what goes around comes around but look you know I'm not very famous Tom and you're interviewing me now so I'm very happy about that so I think you've done your uh I think you've done your bit to be honest I think you you hide your light under a bushel mo um <laughs> there uh, we're, we're coming to slag now uh there have been attempts made to improve the situation including the event that you talked about in 1994 called slag we should say it's not it's called straight lesbian and gay they wanted to make the most of their sort of rare female DJs, which is where you got your name Mistress Mo because you started wearing leather and rubber. Um, I, what did you say when you told you that? Well, it was... So basically, I was DJ Mo for a year and I used to wear, like, dungarees or T-shirts or whatever and tie my hair back, you know. And um, so not only did it not look like a girl on the flyer, it possibly didn't look like a girl standing in front of the decks either. And Slag was this wonderfully flamboyant kind of, you know, what it said, straight, lesbian and gay. It was, it was upstairs at the steering wheel. Um, and they were just like, look, Mo, you really need to, you, you need to make more of this. You know, you're our resident and, and you're, you're a rare breed. So they came up with Mr. Mo and it was them that suggested the outfit um, changes, actually. And an interesting one there, um, the steering wheel was above Legs 11, which was a strip club. So when I played my sets there, I used to go down and see the girls in the strip club who I knew as well. And they'd be downstairs and they'd be kind of coming downstairs, peeling 20 pound notes out of their bras and this and that and the other. And they were all like these ridiculously beautiful, strong women who I don't think it, the, the men were taking advantage of them. I think it was totally the other way around. They were they were rinsing their assets. You know, I can't necessarily say it's something I want my daughter to do, but they were like they were making loads of money. They were safe. They were, you know, and it. And it, it just the kind of just juxtaposition of those two things happening at the same um, time was interesting as well. But I never really liked Mistress Mo as a name. But by the time I kind of realised I wanted to change it, it was too late. It was it had stuck. 
<laughs> and what did, and how did you feel about wearing leather and rubber and and and, and well, what do you make you know, i mean i've got long legs i was quite skinny back then it was fine i used to you know you have to put talcum powder on to squeeze yourself into this bloody rubber um dress i've still got it actually for a joke um i've got a photo of lewis osborne aussie's offspring trying to put it on in a hotel room actually um <laughs> But um, you know, but I mean, but it strikes me as a bit crass that, and I know that they were trying to do something that was that was uh, positive for women and trying to lift up the, their female DJs. But you know, blokes don't need to do that. I, I totally agree with you. And now that's the good thing. That's this shows how far we've come from 1994 because then it was brilliant. It was a gimmick. It was you know, I went along with it because it was fine. It didn't upset me particularly, apart from my feet hurt in those stupid boots. Um, but I think that it does demonstrate how far we've come because now. And and now I do I do take umbrage at, at female DJs who DJ topless or whatever. It's just like you just shouldn't need to do that. DJ DJ well. I wasn't this some some footage that came out of some bird gorgeous DJ, and um and she was doing all this set and like and and there, there weren't even any leads plugged in the back of the um, mixer, you know. And it was just like oh come on, you know. So use your assets. That's fine, um, but. Um, and it's still yeah, depre- I, it's still incredibly depressing that uh, a lot of that if you're if you're more attractive as a female it tends to make you more successful. I mean, how shit is that? I mean, it's absolutely. I mean, when you've got a face like mine, crap. that's quite depressing. This is a this is a weather. Oh, shut up, you gorgeous woman! <laughs> this, is weather, about? this is a weather warm face, but I, you know, I'm how old are you, Mo? Forty-seven. It, I think you've got a perfectly lovely face for a forty-seven-year-old. <laughs> the, the point is, Tom, that I I'm lucky enough to not care. Yeah. This is my face. I've lived in this face. Um, I've had plenty of late nights. You know, I, it's it's all good as far as I'm concerned. But there are plenty of women now who would be looking at these terrible furrows and, and, and all the rest of it and, and going straight for plastic surgery or Botox or whatever because of the pressure. And and that really, if I can give my kids anything, I've got a girl and a boy, actually. Um, I want to give them that sense of like, it's OK to be you. You know, I put makeup on today because, frankly, that's fine. I don't normally wear makeup. And, and if I was a bloke, I probably wouldn't be wearing makeup. But then I then I look on the positive side, which is actually if you're feeling a bit tired and you need to do yourself up a bit, you can slap on a bit of paint and, and, and suddenly you're in, a, you're in a better place, which blokes don't have the opportunity to do. So it's kind of it is swings and roundabout. But there is definitely, yeah, there is there is more pressure on women to look good. I bet none of your male, um, you know, uh, artists that you've, you've interviewed have worried particularly about what they were going to wear. What to a rave? Or, or to be interviewed. I don't know. Maybe they put maybe they put a nice new t-shirt on. I don't know. Maybe they, I mean they only have to put a nice top on. Look, look at this. You got your pajamas on. <laughs> oh god, I don't know what I'm going to see here. Got the tracky bottoms on. Hey! Look. <laughs> this has got some bottoms on. Yes, oh, that would have been good, wouldn't it? If I'd have turned around, if I'd have got up and I was totally naked from the bottom down, no, and I just spun no, around no. on my chair. If anyone's listening to this on audio, by the way, I just got up on my chair and spun around and showed on my ass uh, to show my tracksuit bottoms. That would have been brilliant. Oh, what a! Oh, well, I've missed a trick there. I've missed a trick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just front not back um so uh, also in 1997 there was other things done there was a gift from the gods it was an all-girl dj tour sponsored by aussie hair care you toured the uk a couple of dates in germany who organized that what was uh and, and who was, else did that there was a lady called jane oh, i haven't thought about jane for ages hello jane um rucroft and she ran the agency from an office in Not- nottingham and actually i used to drive up there and kind of work for her a couple of days um a week it was it was her concept um, and it was, a, it was a, again, in 97, it was a good 
concept. Demo Frisco was part of that. Like I say, Lisa Lashes. Um, there was a load of girls. We, we did a photo shoot at some swanky hotel in Chelsea, which was very nice. Again, it was it was quite it was a positive, you know, a jeans and like little t-shirts and, and whatever. But Aussie Haircare did our um, hair and whatnot, and it was again it was just a great opportunity to. Oh God, they were that was messy, you know. Because we were girls, we got a hotel room. That was part of the deal. If you want to book us, that's fine. We have to have a hotel room. Well, imagine, like, we'd go to these clubs and just get totally hammered, play, go back to the hotel room. I mean, it was it was it was an awful way to live. Sounds brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 was it a success in terms of? Well, you enjoyed it, obviously, but was it a success in terms it, of engaging think- women? I don't think it ever hit mainstream, but we played a lot of gigs between the between. I think there was about six or seven, maybe eight DJs on that, and between us, we did a lot of gigs. So again, in terms of inspiring women, demonstrating that there, you know, there can be there can be women behind the decks. Women, you know, it was Jane's um, thing that she put together. Um, I'm I'm hoping that through that we did inspire, and, and when we had adverts in like Mixmag and things like that, mm. you know. So um, again, even people that might not have seen us there were like, oh, here's a bunch of gold DJs that have got nice hair you know yeah yeah and <laughs> so you, you look, we we have improved that's clear from uh you having to wear leather and rubber in 1994 uh to today but as we've still said we've got a way to go because uh women are unfortunately female DJs are often judged upon their looks perhaps more than their even their DJing skills um mm. how far have we got still to go and can we and more importantly will we ever get there I think we will get there. Um, I totally think we'll get there um, because there's I, the, the women are smashing it now. I mean, I, I kind of listened to a few sets and like I, I don't know if I mentioned Lens earlier from, from the hospitality camp. I mean, I've listened to a few of her podcasts recently. She's absolutely destroying the dance floors. Um, and there's no reason not to book women. We want to see women. Okay, it might be positive discrimination, but it's not like it's positive discrimination from, from girls who can do the job. You know, and soon I'm sure following on from that, there will be more women like in sort of doing the promote promoting side of things. So they'll be they'll be promoting women as well. So I, I, I really think it's 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 only up from here. I my daughter's 10 now. I don't think she'll ever stop to think that there's something that she couldn't do because she's a, a girl. I'd but like the rave, the, but the modern rave scene, perhaps more um, set up for women to prosper than it was in the early 90s. I just feel like you know there's this whole even like in the festival world there's 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 lots of articles now aren't there about why are there not more um uh, headline bands that are that are women why that why are there so few females on, on on lineups so if you are creative musical talented and you are female hopefully now you will get that kind of push that you need to kind of have the courage or the strength or whatever it is to to kind of push yourself forward because people want to have more more diverse lineups that you know that it's almost like it's there for the taking now i feel it's about a pressure it's about a roar so as we come towards the end of this interview between myself, Tom Latcham here on Raw and uh, Mistress Mo, also known as Mo Jones, going to sort of bring you up to date with what she's been up to, look back uh, over the 90s rave scene. But it, to start off this section, you've spun all sorts. You clearly have an eclectic taste in music. What sort of music do you prefer to play out these days and do you prefer to rave to these days? I mean, obviously pre-COVID, of course. Yeah, it's drum and bass all the way, baby. Um like early jungle right through to sort of you know really up to date 
stuff. Drum and bass is much easier to mix. I think I alluded to it earlier. Old school hardcore is a bit random at times. It's 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 you know it's very very varied on the BPMs and stuff. So in terms of really getting your head down and and and, and getting in that groove, just slap on some jungle. But it's nice to be able to mix up um, old stuff and new stuff. I really like that. I like mixing really heavy beats with vocals that's a kind of favorite trick of mine you know slamming two things together and seeing what happens and you know what i don't think enough people do that and i think it's probably because uh as i know that people know what they want and they want it and they want it safe but i well, don't i good. love hearing so, sorry just to finish i love hearing say mixing a heavy jungle tune with a sort of even with a four beat you know and creating mm. your own jungle techno of of your own and taking it on a journey people don't mix up the styles enough and i find it a real shame Without going too much off on the, the vinyl thing, I mean, that is my my craft. I mean, it sounds a bit cheesy, but my craft is mixing two records together to sound really good. And and I think that um, a friend of mine actually said to me, what, what you lose with, like, digital mixing is, you know, you know, when you start to hear, when someone's mixing vinyl, you start to hear it going and you're like, as an audience member, you're like, oh, they're going to fuck it up. You know, here comes the train crash. And it's like you kind of pull it back in and, and you're like, you know nailed it like here we go and that sort of sense of excitement that it might go wrong you don't really get that digital mixing sounds so perfect you kind of don't get that slight kind of judder mm. of beats that's kind of pointing um in that direction and, and then the other thing is the speed of mixing you know when you've got vinyl you kind of you want to you want to mix you want to kind of let those tunes overlap you know you want to play that record for two minutes or whatever you know with, with digital mixing you might be you might be playing a tune for 30 seconds and then on comes the next one and then and that's so as a as a as a producer it must be quite depressing nowadays because there's not much point in producing a track that's more than three minutes long right because you're gonna if you're mixing it you're gonna mix the kind of main breakdown or the main riff or whatever and then, and then you're off onto the next not uh, me mate i leave right. in the mix for fucking ages <laughs> and it's brilliant i mean it's a risky thing it's a risky tactic when i dj no one frankly wants to hear me dj out but um when i do dj i'm no i'm i'm like chopping i'm cutting i'm i'm mixing it for like three minutes and you know the, the problem is as well is i don't know necessarily necessarily know the tunes as well as like i would have done you know if you're a professional dj you know the tunes so it is on occasion a risky business doing that but as, again when with digital you can sort of look at the waveforms and you're like right i know that that color sort of goes with that okay i think you're going to be all right here and you're sort of it's a bit of a white knuckle ride but you know it is fun and uh so that so there's there's, there's difference to that as well um another question that came in from you is uh from 88 to 98 on twitter who says flashback was the best rave for a long time from crunch to q club and ble uh, q club and beyond loved it can you ask uh, Mo what happened to the shop though? Oh, cool. Um, well, we obviously sold old school records, so we spent a lot of time tracking down collections and buying them and cataloging it and all the rest of it. It was we didn't ever really have an online um, catalog. It was very much come and see us, and then all the way through we've been selling tickets for events, and um, you know because we were so because we had flashback, we were so well trusted. We were like we were the ticket agent at the time. You know we. We moved to e-ticketing. We, we were Gate Crashers uh, agent. We were God's Kitchens agent. It was just, you know, in that side of the business was doing so well that in the end we were kind of like this, you know, sorting out all this old school vinyl. It's very time consuming. It's expensive. Um, and it just kind of, I think one day uh, we had some, I can't even remember who bought it off. Us in the A guy came in and was like, I'll take the lot. So we wow. sold the lot. Yeah, job lot. How many records is that? 13,000, I think. Wow. What? <laughs> 
they came uh, in a massive lorry and took the whole lot, all the all the like storage. Who was it? We'd have built. I want to say that it was someone from Spain. We had a chap that used to come over from Spain and he'd book in with us and he would literally come and spend the whole like day, maybe two days. He'd stay in a hotel and he would go through all our records and he'd spend so much. He was like our favourite customer. I bet he was. And I have a funny feeling in the end that it was him that kind of came in. But that's, and, and then and then we obviously launched Ticket Sellers in 2006 properly even though we've been selling tickets for donkey's years before that. So it was just, it was just a show. It was just a sign in the times really that it, because the ticket side of things was going so well, um, the, the shop kind of. Do you feel sad about the fact that record shops are pretty much. Do you know, gone? there was a, there was a post on Facebook the other day and it was talking about the experience. So my job was um, to fly a flashback. And so, I don't know, two, three times a week, I would go into town I'd take, I'd have my bag of flyers, my bag of posters. I'd walk around all the shops, all the hairdressers, Oasis Market, relentlessly putting up posters, putting out flyers. And then invariably I'd end up in Massive or Tempest or one of those amazing record shops. And you'd be, you'd be chatting, you'd be sitting there, you know, someone else would come in. It was, and it was another one of those experiences that I think I feel really bad that people aren't going to have that experience. I think some record shops are beginning to come back now, but it was a total well, you know, you spend hours, hours on it. You go down there with your wages on a Saturday afternoon, and you'd come home when you'd, you'd spent you'd spent the lot. You know, I mean, I can't even imagine in my life how much I've spent on records. Um, but yeah, that record probably that not, whole, probably, but probably not as much as the Spanish guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and and in terms of ticket sellers, um, I mean, because that would have been sort of the the, the when online. So you read Frost's book, uh, he talks about how he was banging on about online sales, online shopping for ages. And then he went into this sort of uh, pit of depression and, and and drug use. And he fully admits that. And he All came right. back out and he came back out of it. And he's like, and Brian G was like, mate, everyone's doing that online ticket selling thing. And he's like, what? I've, I've been saying that idea for ages. But it would have been the advent of that, uh, of, of that sort of time where it all moved online. How successful has it been? Did you hit it at, that, at just the right moment? The, we hit it exactly the right moment, and it was the it was more it was more again internal because we were driving around after flashback to Manchester to Exeter to you know dropping off um, new flyers and posters and picking up. My, it was it was awful. It was relentless. It was you know we'd get there and the guy with the key for the safe wasn't there that day, and you'd have to. And we were like, we've got this this has to be easier. So the e ticketing thing it made our life easier for flashback, and it also. Then for other promoters around the country who might not have sent us a book of tickets, we were like, well, we'll just do, we'll just do it anyway. We'll just do it on our on our website, and we'll send you some codes, and you just let those people in. So um, yeah, we were we were we were literally one of the first people, I think, to do that e-ticket um, thing. Now I look back on that and kick myself because I think if we'd got funding at that point, we could have been absolutely huge. We had everybody. We were like, you know, mm. well trusted, well known. Some of the names that we were selling for were, were huge then um mm. but we kind of just let all the others kind of come like a big tide and sort of wash over us but it's all good we're, we're you know we're, we're happy in our niche now we sell for most of the country's best independent festivals and that is you know i always wondered what happened to to, to ravers what do you do next and then in 2008 i went to shambhala festival and i was like Oh, this is where all the old ravers go, and it was <laughs> like it was like a rebirth. It was an amazing. I'd never been to a festival before, and yet, 
it was it was that feeling of unity again of of something really special something unique um and i was just like this is bloody brilliant you know festivals is my thing so nice yeah um, another and happy, <laughs> happy an accident yeah well, that's good <laughs> uh, but without obviously festivals really for the last year um how has the last been for you have you have you have you coped financially uh it's been really really tough actually um and you know if you'd asked me a few months ago i might have told you a different story but you know again you have to kind of look at what you're given and you can either sit around and moan about it or you can crack on and, and do something about it and for us you know i felt like maybe the business has got into a bit of a a rut you know we've been doing too much of the same thing and all the rest of it and, and covid was the kick up the ass we needed i think to, to to change things around and i took a back back seat I've handed over um, responsibility for the business to a new CEO. He's absolutely smashing it. He's, you know, he's got mm. a new lease of life. He's got a new direction for the business. Um, I think people have looked at that and, and really appreciated, you know, I did it out of necessity. The business couldn't afford to fund all of us. And mm. because I had other ways of earning an income, I kind of said, you know, this is fair enough. I didn't want to lose the team that we'd um, built up. And actually the last few months have been so positive. We've, we've taken mm. on new clients um, you know, it, we just <laughs> state the obvious. We just need some events to happen now. Mm. Um, you know, the will is there. We are talking every day to organisers about how we're going to do um, proof of vaccination or proof of, um, you know, a test on on the door. You know, we, we're we're planning a million different scenarios. How hard is that? It's uh, really hard. You know, we're sitting on groups we're speaking to safety advisory groups we're going on you know this that and the other we're, we're trying to equip ourselves with as much knowledge as we can possibly have so whatever the government end up throwing at us we can go yes we can do that but obviously without government-backed insurance that's caused our two biggest clients boomtown and shambhala already mm -hmm. to, to postpone to 2022 because they just can't take the financial risk you know they, they start spending now big money now you know and if there was that like horrible um you know last minute cancellation due to some kind of covid scenario it would put them out of business so for them they had no option but to go next year and, and kind of ride the ride the thing so that's you know for, for people's i'd never really thought about festivals providing um you know mental health backing for people mm, mm. but it genuinely having those things to look forward to kind of yep. coming together with your friends it's like it's such a it's been such a massive void um, and obviously the nightclub industry has been similarly um, decimated, but we need uh, enough's enough now. Kind of come on. We've, we've, what we've you, done what the have, hard bit. What have you made of the way the government has uh, treated the nightlife industry over the last year? I mean, they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, I think. Um, I It's really difficult. As a business owner, they have been pretty generous. You know, furlough has been an absolute lifesaver. We've had some grant money, you know, it's it saved our space, it saved our bacon, there's no choice about it. But does that make me perhaps a little, does that let the government off the hook a bit for some of the ridiculous <laughs> lack of, you know, clarity and ridiculous lack of decision making? Maybe it does because, you know, they've, they've, they've kind of, they've almost bought me off. Um, but now now's the time. You've, you've had it your way for this long. You, you but hats off, you've done really well with the vaccine programme and all the rest of it. But now it's now time to kind of, we we need concrete guidelines. I mean, guidance. I mean, thank God for Melvin Benn, to be honest. And there's a sentence I never thought I'd say. Um, but he has pushed and pushed for the, for the events research programme was what they always said, wasn't it? We, we need the events research programme. We need the data from that. And then and then we'll, then we'll tell you how we're going to get nightlife open again. Well, in that original set of events, there wasn't even a festival in there. So, you know, Melvin pushed for the uh, Sefton Park gig, which they've now had. 
and he's now pushing for because because now the next hurdle that we've got and most of the festivals that we sell for are camping festivals so it's all very well to test people on the way in but when they're there for three or four days what does that mm, look like mm, so again mm. thanks to melbourne we've got we're going to have a test event um that we can get some data um from but i i think everyone is weary now it's like you know we just need to trust trust event organizers to do it in a safe way um let's just crack on please <laughs> and, and what about performing how much have you missed that um i mean i really only do like uh three or four gigs a year i do i do really good gigs and i and i only do a few of them um i have missed it um i've I, you know I've, but I've, I've missed the going out more to be honest more than the performing i mean i've got a, quite a few gigs lined up the rest of this year i need to mention amazon on the 4th of september because that's that's been postponed and postponed but i, I literally that the lineup for that is incredible mm. and the, and um i've got a wax on gig at the end of uh at the start of december um and again can't wait to play for those guys they're such a lovely bunch um you know and that's that's a that's a it's a small gig but it's a it's a brilliant so anyone who, who looks out for wax on gig at the heron hounds that's well worth going to so okay and and, and you said you step back from the business because you could earn money elsewhere what what else is it that you Managed to do to to, to pay oh, your way. No, don't ask me that question. Um, I'm a horrible <laughs> property developer. I mean, <laughs> you know, it just you know, it, it totally takes away my lovely story. But uh, when I, I know a, like, I know a lovely place in the centre of Birmingham, which <laughs> used to be a church and then a rave venue. Uh, it's it's in real need of some investment there, Mo. So uh, just a little just a little tip to you. I was lucky enough to invest in a few properties when I had money. And so it was an opportunity to go back and, I, you know, I've done courses and educated yeah. myself. And again, it's all about like looking at your assets and what you've got. And I was able to kind of um, to, to turn th those good decisions that I made years ago into, into something positive and, yeah. uh, yeah well, now, so, now it's and it's paid off in the last not, year absolutely well not yet it's it's just kept the wall from the door but it's, right. it's certainly it's it i had something else i could go to uh to generate a rev to generate an income so it was a good good time good. to do that yeah, that's great and um what do you think the rave scene will look like post pandemic my concern is there's loads of events come up if the roadmap is as is that there will be loads of people who bought tickets thinking they want to go to the rave but then actually when it comes to it they can't be asked because you know they're people and that's what people of a certain age perhaps do uh so uh, i think there's going to be a lot of our fancy raves that's my opinion uh but what what's the feeling that you're getting uh, as a ticket seller and what, what, what you know what will the scene look like what will the music be like will it have changed from when we last went out I I think the demand is there. I really do. I mean, we saw when Boris did his announcement in February, uh, the roadmap announcement, we sold six months worth of tickets in about oh, a wow. week. I mean, it was it was literally incredible. I think we took we, we did over 10 million quids worth of tickets in a week. No. It, was, it was insane. Wow. Um, yeah, nuts. So I think the demand is there. I think the younger demographic will care less to be honest and i think the older demographic have probably been vaccinated so I, I i i can see the raves being full to be honest and there's waiting lists you know it's like if you don't want to come a lot of people are saying we'll just ask for a refund and we'll sell the ticket to someone who does want to come because we you know we don't want to have a mm. half empty rave yeah. um in terms of music i think you know like i said earlier we've locked in all these creative people into their little bubbles so i'm really excited to hear what they've um what they've come up with potentially we might suffer a little bit from lack of collaboration it's not really been good to go and sit in a studio and breathe all over someone right. else in the last year but I, I i think it's going to be good i looking silver linings obviously there's been no um 
we can't have international artists at festivals this year. So a lot of festivals have had to say, look, all these big international headliners, we've had to scrap them and we're, we're turning more, um, you know, to oh. our own internal talent. So I think, again, there'll be a lot of people getting a leg up um, well, that have been coming through the that. ranks for that reason. So that's really good. You know, that'll, hmm. that'll, uh, that'll make a difference. And the other that thing I think is maybe people will finally realise that it's not all about the headliners, you know? It's like, this is another lovely thing about the, the events that we work with. They are about the event. They're about the experience. They're about the whole thing, the day and the night. Don't just come because you're going to go and see a bunch of, like, you know, bands that you've seen on... I was going to say Top of the Pops then. That shows my age, doesn't it? <laughs> on the main, on the, the main in, The internet, I think, is, is what it is. I would, really, I would really like for people to, to, to look back on the last 18 months and think how much they've missed being in a field with their friends, going out with their buddies, and actually just give the promoters and the organisers a bit of a, you know, a bit of a thank you for providing this space, this wonderful creative, like, you know, there might be light installations or stuff going on in the woods. Go and check all that stuff out. You know, it's not just about getting mashed in front of a, a stage so I, I i'm hoping that some positive will come out of it although it is all about getting mashed in front of a stage um so uh <laughs> i'm only kidding um so looking back now over your career and and then you know because we are nominally about it certainly we started off about the 90s rave scene in uh this this podcast can you sum up what the 90s rave scene has given to you and your life wow that's a big question I mean, my whole life is, I'm, I'm very, very blessed. I'm very aware that I'm very blessed. I've, I've been able to do pretty much what I want. I've never had a job. Um, I've worked really, really hard. But I, I kind of, there's, there's a kind of special place in my heart for what we went through, what we went through, what we experienced, what we were lucky enough to, to have in the early 90s. And I, you know, many days are quite dull and boring and mundane and it, it, and you only have to kind of and, and lots of people that were raving in the 90s you know similarly probably have fairly mundane and boring jobs and you kind of look back on that period and it just it's just it's just provided my whole life with a story actually you wouldn't be talking to me today if I hadn't uh, if I hadn't done that so I just yeah I just I feel like it's a little it's a little treasured packet and it's over there in the past but it's just it's provided fuel actually um for really everything I've done ever since. And what it did, what did it do for the for the wider country? Because of course, uh, the the rave scene was something that developed in in Britain. It was a very British invention, and you know, so was Jungle, for instance. And and a lot of rave music yeah. has has come out of the UK. It's been a major part of our um, cultural heritage in the in the UK. But what do you think the nineties rave scene did for the UK? Well, I think it gave people a sense of of, of belonging community which is something that I think is going to be really important moving forward the, the sort of message of community and kind of looking out for each other I'd like to think that maybe we can take some lessons that it was so non-judgmental you know yeah, please let's do that again I do sometimes find that like um raves now that people aren't so much up for the banter and, and, and whatever and it's just like don't don't judge yeah I'm an old fogey but I've been doing this since before you were born so let's 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 have a little dance together or let's have a little rave you know um I don't know. I just, I just, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just all a bit special. <laughs> and and what was your favourite year of the 90s and why? Um, I guess for me, it probably was 92 because that was the real year of exploration for me. It started off at, at Camden Roundhouse at a spiral squat on New Year's Eve, you know, at the end of 1991. 92 took me to Birmingham and all the things that I sort of experienced there it was it was free parties and it was the big 
sort of um you know rave promotions and stuff and it, you know yeah it was an amazing year nice and what does the future hold finally for mistress mo well like i say i've got a bit of time on my hands now for the first time like ever so you know perhaps get myself a cdj or whatever the new thing is now and get get myself doing some digital you, mixing you know we've moved on from cdj's i know really, sorry well. like, you, 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 that was <laughs> in the middle that was in the middle now C controllers <laughs> okay one of them <laughs> i don't know i'd love to i'd love to explore music more i'd love to i i am really looking forward to the gigs that i've got coming up so i think having more time means perhaps more more dj work which would be lovely um, ticket sellers is doing absolutely great so I'm sure there'll be um, opportunity to to develop my role there my part-time role as it is at the moment um, you know and my kids are still quite young so actually spending some more time with my kids would be nice before they turn into horrible teenagers and disappear so you know. <laughs> like, like like we all did <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, well Mo it's been a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for your time we really appreciate you coming on the podcast and being such a uh, an open and uh, an honest and fun guest so uh, thanks for your time and uh, maybe we'll see you at that Q Club reunion uh, in the daytime of <laughs> the course the third one <laughs> the daytime it's in the day uh, I, I'm leaving uh, I can't go past midnight okay no midnight's fine I'll see you on thanks, the door Tom. on the dance floor bye bye Well, that's it for another episode of Raw, and if you like what you've heard, we'd love you to get involved. All of us here at Raw HQ buzz hard of how much you, the Raw crew, enjoy our work, and your generous cash donations have been a huge help since our launch. But we're now a team of five, putting in combined 80 hours a week for no wages. We've got loads of plans to go further, expand our team and offer, but that does mean that our costs are also increasing. So we could really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing as you've done since we started. So please do check out our website initially. It's rawuk.com for interesting extra content and to get your hands on our first ever range of raw merchandise. That's rawuk.com. We've also launched a new membership scheme where you can donate to create more interesting and fun content on an ongoing basis and you'll even get stuff in return. So head to patreon.com forward slash rawukpods. That's patreon.com forward slash rawukpods to see what's on offer. You can also join our YouTube membership, which is the same. Or if you're not bothered about membership, but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or repeat donation, head to our website and click the PayPal link. That website URL, one more time, rawuk.com. Respect to you for your support and for getting to the end of this episode. Please keep supporting us and helping ensure there's more quality content coming your way on a regular basis. Oi, oi. Raw, raw, raw.